It's a question we've been debating for decades. Are colleges and universities dominated by liberals? And if they are, is that important to our education and how might it be affecting our nation today? In a recent study, data compiled by professors from differing political perspectives unequivocally demonstrated that liberals are considerably overrepresented on university and college campuses. And the research on campus climate reveals a decrease in openness to non-liberal viewpoints. Thomas Jefferson once wrote that a well-informed citizenry is the best defense against tyranny. But how well are our educational institutions educating us? And how might the political imbalance in our colleges and universities being affecting our democracy and our society today? This is Christian Curious, and I'm your host, Dr. Haley Gray Scott. Each week, we tackle some of the hardest, most pressing questions facing Christians in the 21st century. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Lucas Mather, the Republican professor, about the question, why is political balance important in higher education? Dr. J. Lucas Mather has taught 185 college and university courses at several universities and seminaries in Southern California, including Pepperdine University, Loyola Marymount University, California State University, and Biola University. He's a seven-year veteran of the United States Navy, an intelligence in the Department of Defense, a graduate of seminary, and holds seven earned degrees. Having graduated with diplomas in fields as diverse as Chinese Mandarin, biblical studies, philosophy, bioethics, and culminating in a PhD in public law and American politics. He is the founder of The Republican Professor, a podcast and media site devoted to political balance in higher education. Dr. Mather, the polymath, welcome to Christian Curious. Happy to be here, Haley. Thanks for having me. Okay, so, you know, you began your career as a veteran serving in the Navy. And I'm curious as to what made you transition from the Navy into academia? Well, I was uh, I was deployed seven times while I was active duty. But somehow, in that seven years, I was able to cobble together enough to get two degrees. And I just kept going. Um, probably, it was my high school mentor. I, I had a mentor named Gordon R. Lewis. Dr. Gordon R. Lewis around Denver Seminary. People know him. He taught philosophy and theology at Denver Seminary for over 40 years. I met with him once a week when I was a senior in high school, and we kept in touch when I was in the Navy. We wrote letters back uh, when people did that. You know, Mm. lick a a stamp, put it on. We'll wait for it in the mailbox. Um, And we, uh, he he, uh, encouraged me to get my degree and come to seminaries, which I did. And I was on uh, terminal leave. I was still active duty on terminal leave my first week at Denver Seminary. And I had him as a professor. So, um, and then that's pretty much the start of that. I just kept going, and, and it really was internally driven by the questions that I was facing inside of myself. I just had an insatiable curiosity to figure out what the answer was. And... I had a trust that other people had similar questions and I wanted to try to help them. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I have to comment that it's amazing gift that you had to have a mentor, 
you know, for that period of time, because I've talked to so many young adults today that really struggle to find mentors, really struggle to find people that are, you know, willing to invest in their lives the way um, Dr. Lewis did for you. I mean, that must make you feel profoundly grateful. Yes, I had an inkling of how uh, blessed I was at the time. Now, when I look back on it, I can't even believe it, how blessed I was, uh, because I see his legacy for what it really is. Uh, In fact, I'm looking for his books on eBay, some of the ones that I didn't quite get or different editions that I never had. And I look, I put them on my bookshelf next to the ones that he signed personally to me way back in the 90s. So, yes, it is. I I feel very grateful. Yeah, that's really amazing. Um, You know, when I when I was looking at your podcast, I noticed that two of the three founding members of the Republican professor remain anonymous and you yourself um, remained anonymous for many years. Um, What made you and you kept yourself and your political affiliation a secret? What made you do that? Well, it was a a concern about getting more work, um, because as soon as I got hired, the first time I got hired, I noticed immediately that I was in an extreme minority as far as uh, the way I understood America and American politics, American law, uh, as, you know, a government of limited powers. The people are in charge, not the government. The people are... um, the one that is really the supreme, <laughs> um, and the way uh, the Constitution should be uh, read in uh, courts, you know, in terms of uh, jurisprudence. And so I, the kind of courses I was teaching were highly controversial. Probably wouldn't have mattered that much to me if uh, I was teaching something like engineering or I don't know, astronomy or something, but I was teaching like social ethics, mm-hmm. you know, where, where the standard textbooks are, you know, you talk about capital punishment, you talk about abortion, you talk about euthanasia, um, you might talk about gun control, all sorts of really hot button issues that are talked about in politics and are little windows into people's broader understanding of how they see the world. All right, so, so how did your colleagues respond to you in your views? Most of my colleagues uh, liked me as a person, but I had a, a real question as to what my place was in the institution uh, because the colleagues can't be relied on. The ones that like you, they can't be relied on to uh, protect you from institutional hostility. Uh, and the, the institutional hostility doesn't, the institution doesn't protect a vulnerable professor either, um, and that's only gotten worse. Uh, part of that has to do with the students. The students uh, have only become more fragile and more entitled. Uh, there's an expectation among the students for a high grade with very little effort. Right. Um, and uh, that's, that's actually where I started pushing back first. That's where I started making my political affiliation known, was because I would say that uh, I'm not inflating grades. Um, 
and I noticed that I seem to be the only one not inflating grades around here. I also happen to notice I'm all, the only Republican professor here, and I don't think that that's an accident. I have high academic standards, and I, I love higher education, the, at least the idea I had of it. I uh, was really heartbroken when I found out over the years, when it gradually dawned upon me that the idea that I had of higher education as a place of true learning and discovery was really false. That's not really what it is. Yeah. Uh, students come to college for the college experience, and the colleges foster a view of the college experience, which often has nothing to do with education whatsoever. No, it's more like a, a consumer. I mean, and, and just to sort of verify your experience in a different way, um, I had the same thing happen, you know, when I was being a professor, when I was a professor and I had a male student who is the pastor of a mega church and I discovered that he had actually lifted and cheated and cop and stolen like every single assignment he had copied from someone else. Um, some article on the internet or he had faked, he had even faked an interview. And so I told him when I caught him once, I said, Hey, here's a learning, you know, here's a warning. If you ever plagiarize again, you will get a zero in this class. And then he turned in another assignment. I checked it. It was plagiarized. And then everything else that I went back, every other assignment that he had done had been plagiarized. And so I told him, you get a zero. And so he went to the board and appealed it on the basis of me being a female teaching a male and how dare I question him. And I'm saying, hey, he plagiarized everything. He didn't do a single assignment on his own. And really the board... Um, they did say, okay, you know, you need to never do this again, but it was just such a slap on the wrist and they were apologetic to him. And it was shocking the way that they responded to this, this student and the way it was more like, okay, we need to keep his money. It was more important for them to keep his tuition than it was to uphold the ethics of what an education meant. That's that's horrific. Yeah, uh, that should have ne that should have never happened. I'm so sorry to hear that about that story. It doesn't surprise me, but it's horrific. Well, you know, and then he came on. You know, he he took a step further and you know called me and you know demeaned me and my judgment because I was a woman and I didn't know anything. And oh my goodness, it was just a it was it was a crazy Were experience. Were you an adjunct professor? I was. And, you know... Yeah, so there's an institutional bullying there that's built into the whole thing because it's probably after your contract was expired. Is that correct? Um, no, I happened? was still in contract with them. Okay. I mean, they they and had probably offered... i wondering if you're going to get new, a new one. Are you going to get a new contract? You right. Know? Yeah, I yeah, mean, so there's you're, that instability. You're, really, you're, being you're, you're being evaluated for a new contract, but that evaluation is not put on paper. It's right. All extra. So that's part of the uh, abuse 
that's part of the institutional crisis we're in, is that you're not really rewarded for doing With a heart for the gospel and devotion to scholarly excellence and biblical authority, Denver Seminary prepares you to engage the needs of the world with the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of Scripture. Our online, on-campus, and hybrid education programs make it possible for you to earn a graduate degree or a certificate, or simply grow in your knowledge of the Bible. Learn more about Denver Seminary at denverseminary.edu. Turns out you did a great job there. And there should have been an evaluation process for that entire experience that you went through, Mm -hmm. an official evaluation process that recognized officially that you did an excellent job in, in, in enforcing high academic standards. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know what the deal was, but those people that are uh, apologizing to the student or whatever, they probably had pretty high salaries and they were worried about the money train going to their own high salaries instead of the student's learning experience. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that, that, that is part of it. And then the more that educational institutions rely on adjuncts whom they do not support and whom they, um, uh, you know, I don't want to say too much or over exaggerate, but, you know, being an adjunct in an educational institution is a difficult place to be um, because you don't have benefits and you're doing a ton of work. And it's it's hard to overstate that. I think you're so far from overstating that. I think actually you're understating it quite a bit. I'm trying. Um, I'm trying not to like push any yeah. buttons, but I mean, it's it. Well, it does not but feel really, good to be an adjunct. Let's just say that. Yeah, that's that's an okay way to put it. I I would say, but it's not really about our feelings. No, it's, it's not. Edu- it's about higher education and what's good for our culture. It's what what's good for our country. And yeah. The the grade inflation is not good for our country. Because it's not. These these folks are going to graduate and they're going to be jurors in criminal trials. And voters. And they're going. They're going to miss the uh, fallacious arguments of either the prosecutor or the defense attorney. And I've been a juror on a murder trial in Compton, California. I've sat in the jury, and I've been around people, and I've, I've watched them carefully. And I'm telling you, we are creating a country that we don't want, a country that where average everyday citizens, that's if if they even show up for jury duty. There's so many people that that try to evade jury duty. As right. if it's, uh, yeah, that, that itself is a major problem. It's like, well, what do you think? Do you think a, a proper criminal justice system just falls out of the sky? No, you're a part of it. That's how it's made. That's how it's run. And it requires a citizenry with common sense, and uh, an ability to have an attention span right. and, and all sorts of, you know, an ability to distinguish good reasoning from bad reasoning. And when um, we extend adolescence into our 30s at great cost, uh, just financially, but it's great cost morally 
and politically because the, the, the citizens that we're pumping out don't take responsibility. They don't have an attention span. They can't take notes. Uh, you got to take notes in a trial. You have, to, mm-hmm. you, know, you have to know what a fallacy is. I'll just give you this, this little story. So we got the case, went into the jury deliberation room. I just listened for hours. I didn't say anything. I listened carefully. Finally, I popped, peeped up. There was a disagreement on the jury. And I said, do you mind if I, I teach logic, do you mind if I just go up to the board and outline how I see it and my, based on my notes? And so I uh, presented it in, in front of the jury. I felt like there was a, a few logical fallacies that one side was making more than the other. And I gave very specific instances of that, very specific evidence. I was one of only two people that were taking notes on the jury. And I have a, a quite an attention span because I was not great inflated. The great inflation reduces attention span because it does not force the student to confront their own obstacles and their own soul to excellence and learning. And so it's just like working out. Like if, if you, know, you, you don't make, if the coach doesn't make you work out, you're not going to be in shape for the game. Right. So anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm presenting this and uh, the deputy came in and said, you got to go to lunch, can't talk about it, so, or dinner, I can't remember what it was. It had the case for several hours at that point. And uh, we got back into the jury room. After, it might have been a day later, I can't remember, but the, we got back in the jury room and started filling out the cards. And I said, are we not going to talk about it? And, and they said, oh, no, no, you convinced everybody. Oh. We can, we can clearly see we can clearly see what we were missing. And it's just because I had the training, and I, I had good training. I was not great inflated. But, you know, that's what we're, that's what we're dealing with. And you mentioned voting. That's another thing, you know, voting. It's kind of a big deal. Right. And so many people are so angry at Congress. Oh, my goodness. Congress constantly has low ratings, like 13%. And yet... Uh, They're the ones who were voted in. And yet, how do you think they got there? Mm-hmm. And how do you think, uh, who put them there? And why do incumbents have an advantage? Incumbents have an incredible advantage. Everybody thinks Congress is so bad, but their own congressman is great. Or at least not worth replacing. Well, so, you, know, you know, what I found interesting, I, I did my master's thesis on, or at least a, a long, extensive paper. I don't know if it was my no, my master's thesis was on the French philosophes, but um, I also wrote an extensive paper on the work of Alexis de Tocqueville and, you know, some of his insights when it came to what was going to make America tick. So he came over with the with a skepticism about democracy because he thought how are average citizens that are uneducated going to be able to vote responsibly and so he had the mindset of you know in france he wanted to maintain the aristocracy because he thought that those were the educated people who could make the educated decisions about how the government should be run and you know when he came to america you know, he found that, you know, there were so many things that that he was enamored of about the democracy. But he did warn that, you know, if if we, Americans lose their education or if they lose their religion and spirituality, they, it, you know, democracy as it is formed in America risks, 
you know, basic extinction or distortion, you know, at a great level. And you can see that also those thoughts also in the work of like Thomas Jefferson and some of the other founding fathers, too, about how important it was for the populace to be properly educated about the matters in order to be able to um, be good citizens and vote responsibly. Absolutely. Yeah. And I keep going back to the issue of great, great inflation and attention span. What, I, I, I think I'll just pound that drum for this interview. The attention span is the key thing. And you mentioned religion, Alexis de Tocqueville, his thoughts about a democracy and his observations of religion. I think the fu- function of religion has been to uh, increase an attention span about things that really matter. And there's an institutional uh, guide to that and a social there was a social uh, buttressing of a form of life that allowed you to slow down. For example, you take the Sabbath off. You know, you, you, this, the post office is closed on Sunday. That's not an accident. That's on purpose. Um, you know, the, there, you're slowing down. At, you're taking uh, holidays off. They're called holy days. Christmas break. You have Easter break. Now it's called spring break. We're trying to secularize all this, but but the result is that we're lowering the tension span, uh, <laughs> which actually doesn't take any work because the human naturally doesn't have much of an attention span. You have to cultivate it. And what I've tried to do, for example, in my courses is uh, create assignments that increase an attention span. That's what I try to do on my podcast. My podcast will sometimes go long. And I don't try, I don't rush it. And I do that on purpose. Um, I'm not sure that it will work on a mass scale, but at least for some people, their attention span is exercised because I think it's always important to point out that you should have an attention span. That's what I notice with people is they don't have an attention. It's a very short attention span. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's impacted greatly in being trained with social media and you know other types of media that that we encounter that we're immersed in on a daily basis um you know as we close out today um what would be a suggestion that you have or an assignment can you give people an assignment if they want to learn how to you know extend their attention span Well, I would say the first thing you got to be aware of is whether you have one or not and, and the truth about that. A lot of people don't even have the attention span for that. So if you can come to an awareness of how bad it is, and this, this might be a, a, a good thing to do, is just try to meditate. Try to, try to meditate for like one minute about one topic and put a timer on for two minutes and count the number of times that your thoughts were interrupted about that topic. Yeah. Um, maybe That's a great put a timer exercise. on. Yeah. Take, uh, get a, get a book about a topic that you're interested in. Okay. I don't want to torture anybody. Uh, <laughs> find, everybody's interested in something, right? Everybody's right. curious about something. Okay. Well, put a timer on for, I don't know, 
try five minutes at first, and then if you already have, you did that pretty well, maybe 20 minutes, and just see, can you read that book and read it deeply, not, not speed read. I'm not talking about speed reading. Right. I mean, read it and try to be aware of how many times your thoughts are wandering or how many times you're tempted to grab your phone or or you start thinking about something else. And, uh, you know, just become aware of it. I think that's the first thing. I think I'm going to do that with my daughters today. They're going to love that. <laughs> Um, those are great exercises Um, Dr. Mather thank you so much for joining us today you know if people want to find out more about you your work the Republican professor where can they find you the Republican professor is available on Apple uh, podcasts it's uh, also available on other stuff I haven't really I don't subscribe to my own podcast so I don't follow everything everywhere it is but uh, it's it's available it should be available we have a website, www.republicanprofessor.com backslash podcast. Uh, we have a YouTube channel. It's The Republican Professor on YouTube. Uh, just full warning, if you, if you search that on YouTube, it will not come up. It's, it's, um, it's hidden. We're, we're being shadow banned on that. But if you, uh, if you search my name, it should come up. Okay. And you, you actually, I would say go to Google. Google search YouTube, the Republican professor, and then the YouTube will come up. <laughs> you can get it on Google, but it's, it's not showing up on YouTube search engine. And then once you get one episode, you can click on it and subscribe and you'll see all the episodes. I think we have like 50 some. Um, I just posted one yesterday. Another one is going up today. Awesome. Well, yeah, you are going after it. On my website. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Mather. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to Christian Curious with Dr. Haley Gray Scott. Visit our website at www.christiancurious.com to find more shows and find out more about us. That's www.christiancurious.com. Stay curious.